Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Susie Schwartz. She is a Canadian author, public speaker, singer-songwriter who currently lives in the UK, and she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 9 and has experienced additional chronic illnesses on top of that. So she's here to talk today about her story and her passions. So I'm excited that Susie is here with us. So thank you so much, Susie. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about your story? Ah, well, thanks, Sarah, for having me. It is a pleasure. And um, yeah, well, good gosh, about me. Like you said, I'm a Canadian living in the UK. Uh, No children, just my husband and my little chihuahua. And um, as you mentioned, my story actually, as much as I can remember, kind of started at age nine with that type one diabetes diagnosis and um, has included a lot of life since then. Um, But that that diagnosis was kind of my introduction to almost dying for the first time. And I don't think at nine that totally computed, although I was in the ICU for a few days, um, being that ill and, um, looking around with these other children, one little boy had been run over by a car, his head. So he was pretty banged up and bandaged and everything. And, it didn't really make sense to me why I was there. But uh, years later, I've come to realize the seriousness of type 1 diabetes in that moment of diagnosis and many moments since. And um, yeah, so as I kind of got older, I started collecting other diseases, some connected to the diabetes and some very random So what um, has type 1 diabetes been like for you such that then you also have gotten connected illnesses? Mm. (sighs) Diabetes, diabetes. Uh, I I wish I could say that it was a friend, but it feels more like a foe. Um, So in the early days, I think being nine when I was diagnosed kind of helped me adjust you kind of roll with things at that age I think if I had been a bit older in my teens would have been a bit harder to kind of accept this new lifestyle although with that said I didn't really want to have to deal with the day-to-day of it and I wanted to eat what I wanted to eat and I the needles didn't bother me in themselves but I just didn't care to you know properly dose when I should have and so right from a young age I I didn't treat my body kindly because of it. It wasn't really, I wasn't ashamed. Uh, I was open with telling people that I had it, but I just kind of wanted to do my own thing. And um, then in my teens, I was told that I might have kidney disease already at that point. And so they did a kidney biopsy. And that's when a doctor said to me, if you don't get good control of your diabetes, you'll be dead by the age of 25. And that stuck with me in not the best of ways. Um, I think at the point it was said to me, it was just a a fear tactic that I don't think ever should be um, used by doctors, in my opinion. Um, 
but also it's kind of made me now that I'm more middle-aged, you know, well beyond 25, that I kind of sometimes get sucked into feeling like I'm living on borrowed time. But anyway, uh, I did have the signs of, of, early kidney disease. Thankfully, my kidneys are actually doing pretty good these days. So I'm thankful for that. But it kind of it's a disease that not only um, can wreak havoc long term, which has happened, thanks probably much to those those years of not treating it kind, but also just the nature of the diseases that it damages the body in an ongoing way. But it's a 24 seven disease that needs management all of the time. And um, I think that if you look at, I don't know if there is another disease that actually demands that of a person where they have to do all the care themselves all the time. Every decision we make, whether we're moving our bodies or eating something, what we're eating, um, whether we have stress in our lives, whether we're fighting a virus, uh, there are so many things that affect blood sugar. And so it's, we just can't ever take a holiday. And, um, you know, people who have perhaps cancer or, or some other problem, go get their treatment, and um, they have to deal with the effects of that. Absolutely. But the management itself is incessant with di- with especially type one diabetes. So it's it's a constant companion. And some days I am fine with that I, you know, cope okay, and I do what I need to do. And, I care well. And then I would say on average, once every six months or so, I hit the wall. And then I have, I let myself have a day. Uh, if you're looking for a coping mechanism, I let myself have a day of just crying, sleeping, walking and screaming, talking to a friend. I warned my husband, I'm like, this is the day I've hit the wall. I cannot, I cannot do this. And I know the next day I'll be able to again, but I just, um, I let myself have that. And that, so that's kind of the, what the demands of diabetes itself um, will do and how I respond to that. But then those long-term effects have also started piling up. So in my, um, we won't go chronologically here if we're talking about the diabetes first, um, probably the apart from the kidney disease, the next thing that happened was I developed retinopathy. So as a type one diabetic, every year, at least back in Canada, um, we I had a yearly checkup, just to, you know, make sure that I didn't have eye disease, or that it was, you know, was not progressing. And every year, the doctor would say, your eyes look normal for the amount of time you've had diabetes. And I just heard your eyes look normal. And then I walked into my checkup one day and he said, Suzanne, you are in stage four retinopathy and you are, you know, in danger of going blind. And the practicalities of that was that he said we immediately needed to start doing laser treatments, um, not to be confused with sight uh, improvement laser treatments. Um, these are very different, but, um, in hopes to stop the, the kind of the useless negative blood vessels from growing and bleeding in my eyes. And, uh, don't worry, you don't see the bleeds only I do. But, um, 
he said, if, if you do have a big bleed, we'll need to do surgery. And that is exactly what happened. So when I got the diagnosis, I was absolutely devastated because going blind was always the biggest fear um, for me as someone with diabetes. Of all the complications at that point in time, that was kind of the scariest. And sure enough, a few months later, I had a massive bleed in my left eye, lost the sight and needed what's called a vitrectomy. And that, I have to tell you, Sarah, is one of the trippiest experiences that I have ever had in my life because they cannot put you under general anesthetic when you're having eyeball surgery because in REM sleep, your eyes move. So you have to be awake. So they just freeze it locally. So I'm laying there in the dark room, the surgeon, doctor, guy with his headlamp on. And next thing you know, I am watching a Hoover go back and forth inside my eyeball. And I, it was, I honestly, in that moment, I was like, what, is there a twilight zone and am I in it? Because it was the most bizarre thing ever. And by this point, I had already been to many appointments and tests in my life. And so after, after he was done, I said to him, like, I could see what was happening. Is that supposed to happen? And he said, oh, you should have said something. That can happen sometimes. And I'm like, say something. You've got a vacuum cleaner in my eyeball and I'm going to start a conversation. No, I was not going to do that. So anyway, fast forward. Thankfully, uh, thankfully, when they took the bandages off, um, a couple of days later, I was able to see again um, out of that eye. Uh, but then a few months later, the same thing happened in my right eye. We had to repeat it. Only this time, I did not see the Hoover, but I felt it. The freezing did not work as far as pain. So it was terribly painful, which I don't think happens for most people. So don't panic if you're going to need to attract me, people. But um, yes, it was uh, not that whole, It's it feels like a lifetime ago. But the threat of being blind is always there because I still have retinopathy and I still get my eyes checked every three months. I've actually collected a couple of other eye diseases at the same time. So I have multiple reasons to go to the ophthalmologist. But um, so that's definitely, you know, in my picture, in my possibly in my future. And I try not to um, get too hung up on that. Um, but then the diabetes did not stop there. Now, Sarah, did you have any questions for me or should I keep going with this crazy diabetes story? <laughs> you, you can keep going. I do want to comment though that um, I too have had an eye surgery where I was awake during <gasps> the procedure. And whenever I tell people that they're like, what? And I'm just like, yeah, that's just, I've been through it, but you can continue on. Um, okay. On your well, Sarah, first treatment. of all, we have to stay in touch because you're the first person that I've, I mean, at least virtually met that has ever had eyeball surgery. I, I'm sure I've crossed paths with people online in the diabetes world that have, but we haven't really got into it, but nobody gets it like you probably do. So anyways, that's, that's fascinating, but yes, onwards and upwards. So, um, in my, well, I don't even know when I'm not very good with ages and time frames, but I developed gastroparesis, which is autonomic neuropathy. So a lot of people, I have peripheral neuropathy as well, which is what people think of um, often with 
diabetes. And that's where you get the burning feet or the prickly hands. Um, so I've had that in my picture for a long time. But autonomic neuropathy is when the nerves in your automatic systems stop working properly. So um, those organs that are supposed to do their job without us telling them to. And so for me, the the worst of that is my gastrointestinal system. And so um, gastroparesis just basically means that everything top to bottom has really slowed down for me. And uh, I was so sick with that at one point that um, they said that my only hope uh, was to have a gastric pacer implanted into my belly wall. And then they wormed wires from that up to the bottom of my stomach. And it had electrical impulses that was supposed to stimulate movement. And um, that also was very strange, let me tell you, because I could feel the the implant in, in that little jiggly belly of mine. Um, but the the problem was that it caused horrendous debilitating pain, which they'd never seen before. And every time I ate anything, I was doubled over and so rapidly lost weight and my quality of life was not good. Um, and so we ended up having to remove that af after about two years. But if, if you, if I may indulge, Sarah, I will tell you a little story about getting my diagnosis. Well, not of the gastroparesis. We knew we had, knew I had that, but trying to figure out, okay, so is it, my stomach that is the main problem or my intestinal system that is the main problem, like which is, and anyway, so I had to have what they call a defecating proctogram. Now I'll just let that settle for a second. If you can figure out what that might mean, but basically they pumped me full of barium in every orifice possible. And then they had me, sit in a room with an x-ray machine. Um, but I was in the center of the room on a portable toilet in my little useless gown with about five people in the room. And the doctor in, was, so they, they get me set up and then they have, of course, it's an x-ray room. They have to go behind the glass to be safe. And I just remember sitting in the center of this room alone, pooping in front of an audience. And the doctor through the intercom is going, you're doing great, Suzanne. Just keep going. Yep, this is great. You're doing awesome. Just keep going. And at that point in time, I thought this has got to be rock bottom. Like this has got to be the bottom. I, part of me wanted to absolutely burst into spasms of laughter and I wanted to bawl my eyes out. And instead I just sat there in shock going, what is happening? So yes, um, that is also thanks to the diabetes because the diabetes did the nerve damage, which caused the gastroparesis and then demanded this test. Um, so that's kind of the, the main things I would say from the diabetes specifically, but then I've had random health challenges as well, which have added to my story. I cannot imagine, um, you know, I feel like it sounds like you, you pushed through, uh, some of those situations literally. and yeah, li yeah literally, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
and you know experiencing probably in that moment like i I don't want to be here but i i have to to figure Mm. out what's happening um you mentioned early on like at the beginning of the diagnosis with diabetes how you know you you didn't necessarily treat it well you wanted to keep Mm. you know just doing what you were doing has your diet changed that you're no longer able to eat things that you liked eating or are you able to better manage and still indulge at times? Mm, I love that question. Okay. So first of all, I just want to say the reason that I tell the graphic uh, defecating proctogram story is because in that waiting room before I went in, I was not alone. There was someone else that was going in to have that same test done right behind me. And I realized Like, this is reality for people. And yet we're so ashamed to talk about these things. And I just think we need to drop the shame and, um, and, and normalize, you know, some of what people have to go through, because let me tell you, you do feel alone, um, uh, in those moments. And I just think, yeah, normalizing it is important, but, uh, the diabetes. Well, thank you for asking that. Um, so a couple of things changed. Uh, when I when I was going blind, I got really serious about the diabetes. I was like, things have to change. I don't want to be a blind person. My body's starting to fail. So I radically s- changed my diet and I started exercising um, regularly. And then also I had just got an insulin pump, which meant that um, I... Now, instead of the injections, I'm getting insulin little bits all the time. And then if I need to correct for my blood sugar or if I'm eating something, then I can dose up for that. So I I still don't have fantastic control, but not for lack of trying, but it's way better than it was when I wasn't treating my body kind. So I can honestly say that most days I treat my body kind now and I do have better results for it. But technology certainly is a part of that. So I'm very thankful for that. Right. Definitely. The fact that technology has improved for people with diabetes is helpful. And, you know, you go to these reoccurring appointments to make sure things are continuing to be managed. Mm -hmm. For sure. So what are these other sort of medical things that have popped up in your life not connected to diabetes since talking and breaking stigmas is something you're passionate about? Yes. Thank you uh, for the platform. Well, when in my early 20s, uh, um, on the morning of my honeymoon, I woke up with a soaking wet T-shirt and we knew something must be wrong. I had not just had a baby, nor was I expecting a baby, but still I was producing milk. And so this was obviously a problem. So I went to my endocrinologist and um, through a series of uh, appointments and tests with neurology, they found out that I had a tumor on my pituitary gland, which is just uh, in front of the brain, kind of center of your forehead. And so I needed brain surgery to have that removed. And that was a treat. And um, I will say, as as just a little freebie for you all out there, if you're looking for a job and the manager has just had brain surgery and is at home recovering, don't call them asking for a job because it's not going to happen. You're not going to get the job. Yeah. Um, but I, that surgery was also, uh, it was, mm, 
it was a rough time. Uh, but thankfully it wasn't cancerous and um, they got it all that they needed to at that time. Now it's still, I still have to be regularly tested because it could grow back, but the good news is it's usually slow growing. So it might be able to be managed by medication if we were to catch it sooner. Um, but uh, that is, they didn't tell me until after the surgery that it could grow back and that I might have to do this again, which I, I mean, I'm not a violent person, but I wanted to punch them in the face. But then again, maybe that was for the best, uh, not, you know, not knowing that information. Then I developed a mass in my liver on the same day that I was told that I might also have MS and the MS jury is still out. Um, because of my diabetes nerve damage, a lot of the symptoms are the same. And so it's hard to sort out, like, do I truly have MS or is it that talking? The mass in my liver, um, they also need to keep an eye on. So that meant, um, uh, was it ultrasounds? I think they did regularly for that. And they said it would never go away. They just had to keep an eye out on it to make sure that it wasn't getting too big. And for some reason, unexplainedly, I don't think that's a word, but that's okay. I'm a writer. Uh -huh. um, the, it disappeared. So I'll take it. Um, it's gone and we have, you know, moved on from that one. Um, but I think it, it was just another thing to manage and to have, uh, you know, watched in amongst a whole bunch of other appointments. Um, just as a side note, I realized I did the math and I realized I've had over a thousand blood tests out of the arm and, you know, many MRIs, CTs, ultrasounds, all of that. So if I've had that many tests, you can imagine how many doctor's appointments that I've had. Um, so there's been quite a few. But in recent years, I also developed ME, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And that um, I've been struggling with that for about mm, seven or eight years. And still, again, that's kind of um, blurry as to, you know, nerve damage versus ME. But um, this is what people suffer with now with long COVID as well, by the way. But uh, I get very bad muscle fatigue um, where my legs will stop working. Um, sometimes my arms and um, I'll get pain and just general fatigue, like crazy brain fog, all of that. Uh, I also have fibromyalgia. So again, it's a little bit, I've had fibromyalgia since my 20s, but this stepped it up a notch. And there was a point in my life with the ME uh, a couple of years ago that I actually was bedridden, was not strong enough to lift a fork, feed myself, push the buttons on my insulin pump. Um, so my husband did everything, absolutely everything. And he would, luckily it was nice weather. He would carry me out to a lounge chair in the back garden here in England and layer me up with blankets in the middle of the summer. I was just cold all the time. Um, and I would just lay there for hours and listen to the birds sing because I had absolutely no energy to do anything else think um if i i was desperate to write because that helps me therapeutically uh and so on a good day he would prop me up with my laptop and i maybe could get two sentences out and that was about it so thankfully i'm on the upswing of that but it still is a challenge and it flares up and down um but i think sometimes what i eat affects it 
female hormones affects it. So there's lots going on there. And I've always had migraines. So that's always been a picture. And again, ebbs and flows as far as like, I'll be in a span of time when they're regular. And then uh, so lately, I've been doing pretty good in that department. So I'm going to knock on some wood right now. Um, But uh, yeah, so loaded, loaded health history, um, as you can see. And you know, it's taught me a lot about myself and life, and here we are. And so you mentioned, you know, the numerous blood draws and numerous appointments. So how do you keep your head up through all of these doctor's appointments and different diagnoses and different things popping up outside of the every six months kind of, mm. you know, screaming at the world about yes. what's going on. <laughs> right. I will say that trick has, um, when I learned that, that, that when I allowed, started allowing myself to do that, that, you know, when I, I mean, I don't time it, I can't be intentional about it is when things pile up and usually it is, um, the diabetes puts me over the edge, but it's usually when other things are piling up as well that I kind of hit the wall. Uh, but I just have found that releasing those emotions um, is really helpful. And so, yeah, what keeps my head up? Well, a few things. Uh, like I said, I mentioned the writing. That is um, therapeutic. I think it um, keeps me, it gives me a focus and, um, you know, something to get out of bed for I'm also a, a singer songwriter so writing music is very therapeutic for me and there are some days where I just can feel the piano calling me and um I those days something always happens those days uh if not a whole song the beginning of a song will happen um there's many days I sit at the piano anyway and I just play um but songwriting certainly is um I write songs for me and then I share them with the world, but it's, it's a, a selfish um, act of, you know, love and therapy for myself. I think to do that. I, I also, when I have the energy, I like, I love people. I find that if I'm in a low energy point in time that can tire me out, but a coffee date with a friend, a phone call with my sister, um, those, you know, listening to the birds in the back garden, it, it sounds a little bit cliched nowadays, you know, live in the moment. But honestly, when you look around at those small things, and you just like soak them up, soak them in, there is something to be said for that. Um, and there have been times when I can't keep my head up. I, I'm not going to pretend that I haven't struggled. I have been in therapy a few times in my life. Uh, that I, you know, well, the first time my husband said, I think, you know, your health is piling up, you could probably benefit from some therapy. And I had wanted none of it. I, uh, I, I thought this was years ago, there was um, even worse stigma then than I think now, around mental health and, um, and getting therapy, but I pushed through, you know, the I pushed past the resistance talked to a few people they said yeah it probably is a good idea can't hurt and it was the best thing I did because I really got some help in that therapy then and since then I've I've benefited uh because I've reached out when I've when I've needed to but there have been some some dark times when I was bedridden uh with the ME or whatever is happening in my body I and I was in such agony 
and so debilitated. And I thought, if this is my life, I cannot do this. And I, I never got to the point of, you know, I've got a plan. This is how I'm going to, um, you know, die by suicide. But I was at the point where I thought I might come to a time when I need a plan because I can only do this for so long. And I certainly think differently. I think about suicide now than I used to in my more judgy days. I think, um, I have a, a compassion and an understanding that I didn't used to have, I think for people struggling. So, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think, I think, um, I, I think because I allow myself to be honest about my feelings, I can usually get through them. Uh, I can't stuff them down. I can't um, deny. As soon as I try to do that, I'm an absolute mess. Yeah, it sounds like you have a, a good handle on your emotions and the fact that you did kind of take that leap to therapy. I know, as you said, the stigma is starting to wane, um, that it can be so helpful for people. I think it's helpful even if you're not in a terribly dark place. I've now I'm like therapy. Yes, you learn things about yourself. You learn how you how you cope with every day to day stuff. You learn how to deal with, you know, whatever it might be, a, a stepchild or a mother in law or I mean, yeah, I think therapy, it's not always available to people unless unless you can afford private therapy. But I am, a uh, you know, someone now who who speaks highly of it and um, definitely recommend even even if you're not in the deepest, darkest steps. Definitely. Now you shared a little bit about writing and songwriting and putting your music out into the world. So do you want to share a little bit? You've got a book published and kind of what the publishing of that was like, along with putting your music out to a wider audience. Sure. Um, well, as far as writing goes, I've been writing for many years. Um, I s started blogging quite regularly a while back and have completed four manuscripts. Um, and I also write for, I write a column in some um, newspapers back in Canada called Expert Patient Here to Help. And it's just kind of about um, helping people either navigate the healthcare system um, or or cope with having health challenges. So that's kind of that column. So I've, and then I've got a few other publications um, in, in other places online and such, but um, I've been actively writing for a long time, but yes, I did just release a book called Help the Doctor Help You, 31 Secrets and Tips for Self-Advocacy to Get the Best from Your Appointments. Um, and that is because I I just have found that um, I have solid relationships with most of my medical team. And I kind of deconstructed why that might be. And I think over the years of so many, you realize um, that, well, I've realized that I can be empowered. I can set the tone for an appointment. I can, you know, um, gain the respect of a doctor. I can humanize them and then they humanize me. And I really get great care from my medical team. And so that's kind of what pushed me into writing, writing this latest book, because I just felt like so many people say, things like, well, the doctor said, so I guess I have to, or whatever, or they don't think that they can ask questions or, um, that they can, you know, guide the, the conversation or they can do research. Um, 
and and there's there's helpful ways of doing those things and then there's less helpful ways as far as you know the actual appointments go but i just saw kind of a, a gap and i thought well if I'm going to have all these appointments, maybe do something productive with them. Um, so yeah, that's available on Amazon, um, wherever your Amazon lives. Um, but the music, so I've been playing the piano since I was about four or five. I took lessons for many years in my younger days and then promptly forgot everything I learned at the lessons because I naturally play by ear. And so um, when I lost uh, when I found out that I had stage four retinopathy and I was processing possibly being a blind person, I realized I play the piano by ear. Blindness can't steal my music from me. I can still make music as a blind person. And that's when I started actually writing. And a lot of that was processing my feelings. So, um, you know, they weren't happy, clappy kind of songs but um, definitely helped me process. But also it was a gift kind of that I felt I was given knowing that, you know, diabetes and blindness couldn't steal it from me. But then in during the pandemic, uh, I, was, I was feeling kind of frustrated that I was writing these songs, but they didn't have a home. And so I took a course online about kind of putting your music out into the world and, um, and how to do that and a little bit of songwriting tips and such. And I took that course and I connected with other musicians. And so I started releasing music in the last few years and I have two um, artist names. So Sushwa is um, where I put my instrumentals. And then I have a few songs on there that have other people's voices on them. And then Susie Bird, B-I-R-D, that is my artist name for songs I reserve for my voice, which uh, I'm still getting used to because I've never seen myself as a singer. But there's some songs that um, I've been encouraged to sing myself because of their meaning and what I'm trying to convey. I'm the best person to convey the emotion of those songs. So um, I have a few out under Susie Bird and a couple more coming soon. Um, but again, it's kind of this, uh, selfish, guilty pleasure that, Hey, if other people can enjoy as well, then, then that's why I release them. Um, I have no desire to be, you know, a touring artist. Um, but I, I just love the songwriting process. Yeah. That's really great to kind of like know where you want to be in that area now, why did you choose to have two different kind of artist names that are not directly your first and last name? Oh, um, well, so Sushwa, I had created that name years ago, actually, because I was kind of thinking of, I don't even remember what I was doing, but I was, I needed a business name and I came up with that and then I never used it. And so when I started writing music, I thought Sushwa, hmm, that sounds like you know, an artist's name, I'll just go with that instead of Susie Schwartz, I'll do Sushwa. And Susie Bird actually is my, Bird is my maiden name. So that's why I went with that name for the other side. And the reason I separate them is just because if people, they're, they're, they're different in their sounds. And so if people want to follow you, it's better to kind of have, um, it is a bit confusing under Sushwa because I started with the other vocals on there and now it's the rest of it is all instrumental. But um, I think it's known for my instrumentals there now. And Susie Bird 
you know, kind of has my vocal, my sound on it rather than featured artists. So that's why I separated them out. Yeah. Now, are you planning on releasing another book in the near future or are you going to keep publishing in different avenues? Well, I am planning on releasing uh, one, two, three, like four books, but I, ha- I have to start writing some of them first. Um, uh, s- seriously, though, I-, I have these ideas. Uh, so I actually help the doctor help you. I can see as a series because this one is very much um, practical tips about building relationships and gaining respect and getting the best kind of care and results. But I can see myself writing perhaps the next one about coping mechanisms with, with having chronic illness. Um, and then, um, you know, I have I, uh, other ideas as far as like, perhaps, you know, from my husband's perspective as a caregiver or whatever, but I am in the editing stages of a memoir about my chronic illness life. So I'm hoping that within the next year that will come out. Uh, it is untitled at this point, so I can't even tell you what to watch for, but, uh, I guess my name and my memoir, but yes, um, I'm, I love the writing, don't love the editing. So I'm, and then this book kind of leapt into my brain whilst writing the memoir and kind of, uh, I focused on it for a while, but, um, yeah, so, and I'm still obviously writing for the paper and such. So very active in, in that. Yeah. Now you're writing for a paper back in Canada. So is the healthcare system similar in Canada versus England or is it, different to navigate yeah well um i mean (laughs) we we weren't planning on moving to the uk um we weren't planning on going anywhere we had lived in a small town just outside of winnipeg for well all of our married life um and um my husband got the opportunity to move over here to england for two years and it's been 10 so um i've had the chance now to kind of compare well i had the chance quite early on to compare the medical systems because i'm obviously actively in it here as well uh i would say that they're they're mostly similar in that they're both free healthcare systems um government funded and um the services that they offer are pretty similar wait times used to be similar now i'm hearing um i think the pandemic Really, we have two broken healthcare systems that just got more broken in the pandemic. So I think, I think we're struggling here, we're struggling there. But um, I, I hear horror stories of people with cancer not getting tests or or their chemo or whatever, you know, back in Canada, and and perhaps that's happening here too. Um, but I, I, I'm very thankful because both systems have saved my life, and. The one main difference is here in England, you have the option to go private. So if you have the means or you have insurance, um, you can go private, which means quicker care. It means if you need an x-ray rather than waiting a month or two for it, you walk down the hall and you get an x-ray while you're there um, and those sorts of things. So um, yeah, that is, that's the main difference I would say. Um, And as far as the book goes, I've, I've thought about it in the sense of the U.S. because your system is very different there than, than the systems I'm used to. 
But I realized that most of the tips would apply anyway, because it's more about humanity and, and relationships um, and um, just, you know, being prepared and what you can do as a patient, which I think would translate as well in the U S but um, it, it was, it was scary to start over when we moved here with doctors, because back in Canada, I had a whole team. I had my, you know, my neurologist, my gastroenterologist, my GP, my endocrinologist, all of all the ologists, I had them all and, and we had a relationship and then I had to start over here. Um, and it, it took some time, but I've got a great team here now too. So I'm really thankful. Yeah. And I agree that I think the book topic, you know, it can translate to different healthcare systems. Now you did say you were only going to be in England for two years and it's <laughs> been 10. So mm -hmm. is that kind of maybe a permanent change? Well, I have realized, I think chronic illness is one of the things that has taught me this, as well as some other life circumstances. But I've realized that you can plan, you know, as far ahead as you want, but life will change your mind. So at this point, we're quite happy to be here. It makes sense for my husband's job. Um, the weather is kinder to me here than it than it was in Manitoba uh, on my body and also my mind because we went back at Christmas this year and I thought, I can't do this. I can never move back again. It was so cold. Anyway, um, but uh, we do have a lot of people back in Manitoba that we love. And thankfully, we've, we, um, a perk of the company was that we have trip, they pay for a couple of trips home a year. So um, we have been able to stay pretty connected with our people back in Canada. I can't imagine if we didn't have those opportunities, it would be much harder, but we're, we're quite happy here. We also dream of living on the coast in Italy or Greece or some somewhere um, at some point in our lives. I don't know if that's a pipe dream or if that will ever happen, but um, after we moved here and we realized you can make a radical change in life and it can go well, uh, it's less scary to think about a possible next one. Um, so now that we've kind of been over that, that hurdle of, of moving to the UK, I think, I think, yeah, for a cliche, the world is our oyster kind of, it has to have a good healthcare system. <laughs> That's completely understandable in your situation. <laughs> my, husband keeps, my husband keeps saying we're going to move to India and I'm like, no, we're not going to move to India. Um, First of all, I can't eat their food. So anyway, but uh, who knows? Who knows? But I think we're staying put for now. And are there any big differences outside of healthcare that you've noticed with quality of life besides for the weather as well uh, mm. in living in England compared to Manitoba? Um, I would say as far as quality of life, like there's differences culturally, um, as far as like, you know, but much bigger pub culture here and people think the Brits are, you know, more standoffish and cold. And I've not found that to be true. Although I know why it appears that way, because, um, I think they're less expectant that you'll just start talking to them on the street or, you know, ask them directions. But if you do, they'll gladly help you out. And I mean, all of my friends here, you hug when you arrive, you hug when you leave. So anyway, uh, that stereotype um, is not completely true for sure. Um, so quality of life, I mean, that's huge. The fact that we've 
become well-connected here. We moved into a barn conversion where there's a central courtyard and there's eight houses kind of in a circle around or in a square around that courtyard. And it's rentals. So some people moved away and other people moved in, but we kind of have a natural community happening here, um, which was, which was huge. And I'm so thankful we ended up in the house that we did because it would have been much more difficult meeting meeting friends. Um, and then we have friends through Dawn's work as well. Um, and, um, then of course you meet people's families and their friends and it expands from there. So I, I feel like it was a, it was a fairly easy transition that we didn't know would be. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely cloudy a lot here, which, I prefer the sun to shine. So that, you know, speaking of the weather, I know you said not to, but I'm going to anyway, because it's uh, much more sunny in Manitoba. It's just that the the temperatures and the pressure, I think, mess with me um, more over there than here. We love going back in the summer, though, because, yeah, it's just glorious. Definitely. Mm. Now, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners before I start to wrap things up? Um. I guess I would just want, if people take anything away from today's conversation, I want your listeners to know that, well, I, I guess I can't narrow it down to one thing. But first of all, if you're if you find yourself in a position of needing to go to the doctor, I just want you to know that you you count, you can be a person and not just a number. Um, and if you, um, if you show up on time and you come prepared and you write down your questions and you bring someone else with you so that they can listen and you ask your doctor how they are that day and you thank them when they've done something really well for you, it, it honestly, these things can really make a difference for your healthcare and certainly in the interaction and the tone of the appointment, but also I think it's human nature that when you build a relationship, they're just going to automatically want the best for you um, and see you as a person who needs help. And they'll be more willing to, you know, go that extra mile, be thorough and all of that. And I just, I just, I I guess if there's a way to remove some of the fear um, around that, um, that's what I, that's what I try to do. And second, like, it's okay to laugh if you find yourself, you know, in a proctogram situation, um, you know, try to hang on to, you know, laughing at those, at those dark moments, because sometimes that's what gets you through. And again, if you're struggling, reach out, reach out to a friend, reach out to someone you trust, get some, get some help through therapy. I really do, um, believe that, um, Ah, human connection. I guess that's what it all boils down to is human connection. Definitely. And I know you expand on more of those tips in your book. So if people are interested, they should definitely go check that out. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. My question for you today is, do you have a favorite charity you wish more people knew about? Oh, yes, actually. I just saw an advert on the telly for um, guide dogs. I forget what the name of it was. Shoot. Um, And it was one here in the UK. But I said to my husband out loud, I said, you know what? You know when 
a person dies and they put in their obituary in lieu of flowers, donate to this charity. I'm like, I think that's where I want the money to go. And I've always, I, I mean, I'm passionate about um, diabetes research, obviously, because I think so many of my problems have stemmed from that. But, um, but I just think that the gift of the companion of a dog, if, if one is finding themselves blind, I, oh, that just gets, I, that's, that's what I'm going to say. So the name of the charity specifically, I don't know, look up your local guide dog charity. That's, that's the one. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So if you would like to connect with Susie, her link tree will be in the description. That brings you to her website. It brings you to the book if you would like to go purchase that. And it brings you to her socials, including Instagram and TikTok. And it brings you also to her weekly uh, support newsletter that she puts out, which is called Convos with Carlos, named after her dog. So feel free to go sign up for that and connect with Susie. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our past episodes, past resources, past guest social media, our social media. We are on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to connect with us and see episodes as they release, that support is always appreciated. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description. And my email is also in the description. If you would like to be a guest, feel free to reach out to share your story on the show. So thank you so much, Susie, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye.